So, uh, last week we had a missionary come, and it was it was great to have Terry with us just to kind of share um, what's going on around the world and what Ethnos Canada, is, or sorry, Ethnos International is doing in all the various countries. Um, but and the good news for me was that I, I got to you know sit with my family during a sermon. That was exciting. Uh, but the bad news of that is I finished my sermon about like late Tuesday, early Wednesday this week because I had a whole extra week to do it and I was too eager to get going. And so by last night I was like, what, what, what was I, what did I write on again? And I had to remind myself and get through it. So, so hopefully it is fresh on the brain here. Uh, if you're visiting or, or you haven't been here for a little while, uh, let me just tell you, we are working our way through the book of Exodus. We started this back in uh, the beginning of the calendar flip in January, and we've been learning and, and seeing God's power on display. And, and sometimes it can be easy to think that, man, Exodus, what, what does that have to you know, relate in my life? And, and as you have seen, and I hope that you've, you've heard and understood, is everything. It's all about God's sovereignty it's about God's planning. It's about God bringing about uh, rescue from circumstance. All of these things that directly impact us and that help us understand something very crucial. And this is something we know intellectually, but we need to learn internally over and over, is that God is in control of all things. And so the situation that you find yourself in today, that that's not accidental, that's not a mistake, that even if it seems like you can't find any positive in it, is that God is at work to redeem that situation and use you in the lives of those around you for the gospel. And so that's the promise that we have seen over and over as we go through this. Now, I would like to take credit for the, uh, the, the timing of all of this, but we're going to start looking through the Passover this morning. And of course, next week we have communion, and then the week after that is... Easter, uh, the truth is I'm not smart enough to do that, but uh, as we have kind of gone through and the plagues kind of got split up a little bit, is this has been just a really good lead-in. And so before we talk about Passover, I just want to clarify real quick, as the, the nine, I guess, plagues that have happened so far, is what we've seen is a God who is showing his power and his might, not just for any old reason, but first of all, there's divine consequences to the Egyptians for the enslavement of the Hebrew people. Remember, Joseph at the end of Genesis went uh, to Egypt, and essentially through Joseph, God saved the nation of Egypt and grew them. And they became mighty, and they became powerful, and Joseph became second in command. And then the Hebrew people came in at the request of Joseph, which the then Pharaoh granted, and they were supposed to kind of... Well, if you think back to the promise of Abraham, those who you bless, I will bless, and those whom you curse, I will curse. And that promise was there, but then the new Pharaoh takes over kind of 430-odd years later, and he enslaves the nation out of fear that the Hebrew people are becoming too many. And so there's consequence that happens here in this, and we talked about a couple of weeks ago, the reality of, of the firstborn about to be being killed in this 10th plague. We talked about... It's not God's arbitrary anger, but it's divine punishment over a course of people refusing to submit themselves to God and, and what he has called and asked for his people to be freed. And there's lots of complex stuff in there. So if you, want, if you weren't here, I do encourage you to go back two weeks on our, on our website and, and take a listen to that and just kind of see God's plan of salvation being worked out. And actually, it, while it seems very harsh and 
maybe that God is angry, there's a great deal of God's mercy in that. And so last time we prepared in chapter 11 of Exodus, we prepared for the 10th plague. But we're going to take a slight detour now talking specifically about the Passover, why it was instituted, what it meant, and, and specifically for the Hebrew people, what it meant in the years to come. And then next week we'll get into the actual 10th plague. So let's read, we're just going to read verses 1 to 28 of chapter 12 of Exodus. just encourage you to turn there or follow along on the screen says this, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. And tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, sorry, according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night roasted on the fire with unleavened bread, bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day, you shall remove leaven out of your house. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day, you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day, a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what, every, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwelling places. You shall eat unleavened bread. There's a lot of repetition there. It's almost as if we as humans are real slow to learn. 
Verse 21, then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, go and select lambs for yourself according to, the, according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood of, that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of this door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt. And he struck down the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so, as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. As you can kind of see... It, I could have cut a chunk of that out, but I wanted you to see the repetition, the importance, the reminder over and over and over again, because we are slow to learn people, or, or maybe better to say is we're easily, uh, we, we easily question all things that are given to us. Well, well, why? Why should I do it that way? Can I do it mostly that way and a little bit my own way? Any of you parents, you ever had that conversation with your children? Please go clean your room. Well, when do you want me to clean my room? How do you want me? Can I clean it just a little bit? This is just the reality of, of us, our, our sinful nature in us and, and questioning authority. Well, God's making it abundantly clear here for us, the reality of it. But as I kind of, I read this over and over, and then I went uh, into some commentaries and into some scholars to uh, kind of see what they said about this. And it was really interesting because they pointed out kind of all the same things, but really, really emphasized this. God is about to rescue his people out of slavery. That seems obvious. It seems like, hey, we know this. But remember is when Moses and Aaron first showed up and told them this, their assumption was that was going to happen imminently. Probably that day or that week. And, and while the timeline isn't clear, uh, Shayla asked me this question last night, and I went down a little rabbit hole, and it seems like scholars are, are, aren't sure, but anywhere between at least a month and all the way up to a year, these ten plagues took, took place over. And so they've been waiting for this moment to come, and this moment is finally here. Is you have been slaves your whole life being oppressed and beaten and abused, and now here it is. This is, this is the night when God is going to start this, at least start the ending process for them to see that they will be rescued. This moment is so significant that in verse 2 it points out that the very calendar was about to change for them. They were no longer going to keep their calendar the way that they had done, but there was going to be a new one so that the beginning of every year had significance and meaning. I don't know about you, but the, when January 1st comes, and we all make our little New Year's resolutions, and we're like, ah, a fresh start to the fresh year, is like, that's kind of it. But for the Hebrew people, there was, this, there was this celebration, this festival, this reminder from where they have come from to where they are. And I probably talk about this way too much, but I have needed this reminder over and over in my life. Is that I forget to look back and see God's faithfulness. I only look at the present circumstance that I struggle with and go, God, where are you? 
How could you allow this to happen? Well, I too need to look back and remind. So it might be good for you, for your family, maybe to consider, oh man, let's create a new calendar in the sense of this next year, this, this, as we move forward here, that this is the moment where we have decided as a family, we are following the Lord with everything that we are. Maybe we don't need to, you know, try and make it be as if March is the beginning of our year. But maybe March signifies that moment where we have been reminded of what God did and his faithfulness to the Hebrew people. And then write down the ways in which God has been faithful to us in the last year and all that God has brought us through. The other thing is a sense of identity. Is remember Moses needed to be reminded of his true identity because he wasn't sure. Was he a Hebrew? Was he an Egyptian? Was he a Midianite? He had all these kind of parts of his life, and, and he was constantly trying to figure out where, where do I fit? And, and it was in the burning bush moment that we looked at last week with Terry, where we see Moses turn aside and go and investigate, and we watch as God works in the life of Moses to show him, you are my son, and I love you, and you are part of this people. The same is true uh, for you and me. This last few weeks, I read a very, very challenging book for seminary called Strange New World. And it deals with the psychology of the last few hundred years of how we got to this place at this time where our extreme individualism is the most important thing. But the problem with that is if we identify in one group or one type of people or, or one situation, whatever it might be, when that falls apart, then who are we? We lose our identity and we have to start over and we have to try and find a new identity. And his argument through the book is, is that, look, your identity is solid. Your identity is confirmed. You are a child of God and you are part of his family. And so no other thing should you find that ultimate purpose or that ultimate value. And the great news is, is then things can come and go. Your, your job can come and go. Your career that you've put time into uh, Perhaps even family, because here's the reality is, is all of us at some point are going to die. And if our identity is rooted solely in, let's say, our spouse or our parents or our children, then we're going to have a major crisis of identity. Now, I'm not saying that that means grieving is any less difficult, but it does give us a broader framework to work from and to say, God, I belong to you. And so the calendar was changing. Moses and Aaron were reminding them, here is what we're going to do. We're going to celebrate. You are not slaves. You are children of the one true God. As God tells Moses what the Passover is going to look like. Well, what's interesting is there, there's the inaugural kind of talking about it. This is what's going to be. But actually, the text is more about how you're going to keep this for generations to come than about the first one itself. And I found that to be very interesting. We, on this side of kind of history, can look back into Scripture and we can see very clearly what the Passover is. We can see what it represents, and, and we can see not only in these moments where, where Moses and Aaron give it to them and where they say, you're going to celebrate this forever, is this ultimately points to who? It's a Sunday school answer now. That's right. 
And we can go through all of Scripture and we can see these. There's passages in, in Jeremiah eleven nineteen that says this, like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. Speaking of the Messiah, like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. Isaiah 53, 7 says the exact same thing. And, and when Jesus comes in, in John chapter 129, we see John the Baptist cry out, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He says the same thing again in chapter 1, verse 36. And then just in case there's debate about who Jesus was, first, in 1 Peter, Peter writes, After the cross and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, Peter says this, this is chapter 1, 18 to 21. You were ransomed, speaking of us, you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. What does it say? Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Jesus is this lamb that we see, at least metaphorically, or the the starting of it. God has planned what salvation is going to look like, and he's given the people, here's Passover. Here's what this points to, and you will celebrate this for forever, So that when the one Passover lamb does come, when Jesus, when the Messiah comes, that all will be clear to you. It's only through the blood of Jesus that we find salvation. Douglas Stewart writes it this way. The Messiah was to be one body, broken for all, symbolically eaten by all, in order to help believers in the new covenant keep aware of their unity as members of the one body. So what do we do the first Sunday of every month as essentially the same thing as the Passover? We take communion. We remind ourselves that it's only in the shed blood of Jesus Christ that we have salvation. Just as they did it in this regular, ongoing way, so too we do it in the same way to remind ourselves because life is chaotic at best. And we're quick to forget. And our circumstances can get very challenging and we can lose sight. And that's why it is so important that even when we're in the midst of that storm, if we come to church and that's the communion Sunday, is that we slow down, we clear our minds, And we look back to the faithfulness of Jesus so that we can look forward to his faithfulness. Not that our circumstance is immediately going to change, but that we will be reminded that one day we will be rescued from our circumstances. To be with him forever. Stuart goes on and explains this. The ultimate purpose of the Old Testament Passover instruction is to point forward to who? To the purpose of his death memorialized in the ritual of the Lord's Supper that now replaces Passover, and also to the unity of those accepted by him as his people, his body. But another thing really important in First Peter passage that we read, it says this too, and, and this is crucial, is God is not reacting and going, I better figure out a way to deal with this. Is this has been the plan of salvation from the beginning. That when sin entered the world, God didn't go, oh, I guess I, I guess I got to make a plan and figure out what to do. 
all of these steps are in place. Just as when he shows up with Moses and Aaron and says, I'm going to let the people go, even though they thought it was going to be imminent, God says, no, I have plans and I have purposes, and what I say is going to happen. It might not happen in the exact schedule that you would like. And so from this point all the way until Jesus for several thousand years is people celebrated Passover. The the sacrificial system comes into play, which we'll talk about that in another week. But all these things was pointing to the fact that shed blood of a perfect lamb would have to be slain. That Jesus alone would forgive our sin. And just so we're real clear, the lamb or the goat did not actually forgive any one of their sins. However, that doesn't mean that their obedience and their faith in God, trusting him, that he would make a meaningful way for salvation to be conquered, that for for death to be be conquered and salvation to be uh, bought, it was very meaningful. It was, in fact, the most meaningful thing. Hebrews 10.4 says it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So the question is, so why do it? We do it because God had, well, they did it, pardon me, because God had promised one day I am going to deal with this in finality. And this symbol for you is the daily reminder that as that blood is shed, that as the sacrificial system, which is so messy and so painful and which costs so much to the community, shows and points us forward. So that when Jesus comes, that there's no missing it. There's no being confused about it. When Jesus says that I give up my life for you, that his disciples see it, understand, and we on this side go, praise the Lord that I don't have to sacrifice every time I sin. Praise the Lord that Jesus came once and sacrificed himself once for all. Because sin was not yet dealt with in the full sense until Jesus' death. Kenneth Harris puts it this way, the Israelites, in light of the developed sacrificial system, would find the blood of the slain lamb to be a vivid reminder that a life had to be sacrificed in place of those in the home. I think this is really crucial for us to understand, especially those of us who have maybe been Christians for for many, many years is we can just kind of assume that we're real close with Jesus and we have a great relationship and and we can lose sight of the fact that it costs Jesus his life to be in relationship with him. There's this seriousness about There's this sense in which we look at this and we go, I am not worthy of this. I do not deserve his forgiveness. I haven't earned salvation. I desperately need a savior. Praise be to God for that Savior. And so while that might all track and make good sense, there's some other details here in the text that I just want to deal with. Because for us living many years later, and probably not understanding the cultural context that these verses fall into, it can be confusing. So when we get to verse 10, for example, uh, let me read it again. It says this, you shall let none of it remain until the morning. 
anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. Is, is why that? Why would the lamb be roasted and only some of it be eaten? That, that seems maybe even wasteful, and we could probably try and make it sound like, well, well, our plan might be a little bit better than God's plan. Well, the simple reason is this. They weren't eating this meal to prepare them physically for the journey that was ahead. Because God was their sustainer. And again, God had plans and purpose. And, and as we'll read in a few weeks, God would do crazy things to feed them, like make manna fall from heaven. Make water come out of a rock. Is the point was not, here's this meal for you. Get ready, eat all of it as you can so that you're prepared. The point is, look, realize the significance, the symbolism of what's happening, and tell this to your children and to their children and to their children so that when this one day comes that you'll see this act for what it was, the promise of salvation coming. Do we trust God? That he is our sustainer? Or do we go way out of our way to try and prove that we need to do it on our own? In the last paper I wrote for seminary called The Biblical Theology of Environmentalism, I argue that the earth has been given to us in the sense that we are to steward it well. But one of my basic arguments in there is that God alone is the sustainer and the earth is not going to fall apart because of my negligence. God has picked the day when he is coming again. He has picked the day when the world will be destroyed. That doesn't mean that I can live however I want. In fact, I think it only adds to this aspect of stewardship, especially so that as our children and our children's children come, that we, we do what is honorable so that they can show that, man, if we love God, then we're going to show that we love God by the way which we love people, but also the way in which we love creation. Now, in that order, not the other way around. But God is the sustainer of all things. So do I trust him? Do I trust that no matter the circumstance I'm in, that I don't need to claw my way out, but that I simply need to learn how to trust God more? That doesn't mean that we don't have a responsibility of using our wisdom to accomplish the things that he has called us to. But I think more often than not, we fail to pray and to seek God's will so that we would know what he's calling us to do so we can figure out how to do it. Another strange thing that you might see in the text here is, is this idea of like, this is how you're going to eat it. You're going to eat it with your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, and your belt fastened. Now, I don't know about you, but if you're going to eat a meal, your belt doesn't need to be fastened very tight. What's the point? You're about to be released from slavery. Be prepared, because I'm about to rescue you. It's, it's, if you could imagine it in this sense, is it's, let's say it's a late night in January, super cold outside. Finally, it's like 10 p.m., and everyone's finally getting ready to sit down in your, in your home to eat. But everyone's got all their winter gear on, their winter boots and their hats and their mitts. Kind of a strange image, right? But only if we recognize that this meal that we're about to eat is the last meal that we're about to eat here and we're about to leave. We're about to go. There's a sense of preparedness. God's saying, don't, don't dawdle, don't, don't delay. Be prepared for what I am calling you to do. 
when we went through the adoption process, there was this phrase, hurry up and wait. Is you hurry up and do what you can do, and then you wait for that next step to, to, to be presented to you. And it's the same with God. Is God is orchestrating things in our life, and so when a moment comes to us where we can be obedient, hurry up and be obedient. And then wait for his timing. Wait for his purposes. Wait for that next step, but then get right at it and go. Don't just kind of sit around and think, you know what, it's okay. It'll all work out somehow. I don't really need to worry about this. And this is that challenge of, of understanding God's sovereignty and our responsibility, and those seem to sometimes conflict. Is if God is sovereign over all things, then I guess I just don't need to do anything. But the point isn't you don't need to do anything. The point is that that sovereign God who's in control of all things has given you purpose has called you with task and meaning so that you get to be part of watching a broken world be redeemed and come to faith in Jesus. There's no greater honor that could exist on this side of eternity than the king of the universe to say, I want to use you. So we have our part to do. When God calls us to something, we need to obey completely and fully. One way that we talked about this in our family devotions this last week is that we need to prepare ourselves for battle. In Ephesians 6, verse 12, Paul says this, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so Paul then gives the imagery of putting on the spiritual armor of God, preparing yourself for that battle. But again, I think in my life, and probably most of us, is we become very complacent. We wake up, and we just kind of head out the door, and we just go on our way to work, and maybe we're 20 minutes late because we slept in, and we're in a huge rush, and we just we got stuff we got to accomplish, and we don't remember that Satan and his forces are out there trying to discourage and hurt us. And so if we are prepared for that battle, then when that discouragement comes, when that temptation comes, when that evil is faced in my life, is I can look at that and I can know how to protect myself from those things. Peter talks about it, that Satan is out prowling around like a roaring lion waiting to devour you. If you had a lion, okay, maybe we'll speak in the BAMP language. If you had a bear outside your door, and you were just like, like Lori had a grizzly outside her house a couple years ago. You don't just walk out and go, hey, move it along, I'm late for work. You got to figure out what am I going to do with this situation. But you can only figure those things out if you're prepared to see them and ready. And so maybe reading these verses in 10 to 20 of Ephesians 6 and reading about our spiritual armor and how to prepare for the day is something you should do every single morning until it's just part of your everyday routine. That, God, I am ready for what is coming at me. Now, again, that doesn't mean that Satan is only active outside of the door of your house. The moment that you wake up, you have a sin nature, and, that's, and I have a sin nature, and it wants to screw me up. It wants me to think selfishly. It doesn't want me to serve others. It doesn't want me to help. It wants me to think of me only. So I need to submit to God, and I need to say, God, help me in this. Help me to be prepared, just like they're prepared for the Passover. Help me to be prepared for what I'm going to face today.
Because here's the good news is nothing's going to face you today or tomorrow that God doesn't already know about. So that means he can help you prepare in that moment that you can be ready for. Kenneth Harris writes this, The events of the Passover are the ultimate demonstration of God's holy judgment of Egypt in its stubborn rejection of Yahweh, of God's great love for his people Israel, and of his power that is infinitely greater than all the power of Pharaoh and his kingdom. That's what we should see in these first 13 verses. But just before we move on to verse 14, and and that'll be quick, but just before we get there, in, in verse 12, there's kind of this strange little sentence that I want to deal with just in case it's confusing. God says, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and a beast. Then it says, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. What does that mean? It's actually pretty simple. Is God began the ten plagues with certain plagues that the, Egypt, the Egyptian magicians could kind of replicate but couldn't control. And then he started doing plagues that the Egyptians couldn't replicate nor control. And they kind of confessed, man, we, we, can't, we can't stand against this God. But Pharaoh thinks that he can, and so God shows that he has more power there, ultimately even doing things like having hail fall from the sky, and, and ultimately, as this tenth plague is going to show, even being in control of life over itself is, remember, Egypt is a polytheistic nation like most were. They had several gods that they prayed to for several reasons, one to make it rain, one to make the sun shine, et cetera, et cetera. And God's simply going, man, I'm going to execute judgment on all of them because they do not have any power compared to me. God alone has the strength. God alone has the sovereignty. God alone has the power to do all these things. And so he's about to show the Egyptians that even your gods that you worship, they're nothing compared to me. Now, again, we can see that as a very egotistical statement by a God who goes, man, I just have to prove that I'm superior. Or we can see that as it's a jealous God who's going, there are many people worshiping false gods that can't help them. And I'm the only one who can. And so I'm going to show them my glory so that they would come to faith in me so that they would find satisfaction, joy, fulfillment, and hope. That's the way the Bible talks about the one true God. So real quick now, verses 14. Well, Josh, can I get, oh, oh, can I get two batteries? I'm blinking red. This is why we have good sound tech people. Okay, now we're rattled though. Pretend like this isn't happening. If We have one. Oh, no, they're double A's. We have lots of those. Sorry. Get rattled me. Forget how to even open this thing. Okay, it's like that never happened, I hope. We'll just do that. Okay, verses 14 to 28, it's this reminder again. Here's how it's going to look for forever. This is the statute that you're going to keep moving forward. And I've said this already, but we are a very what-have-you-done-for-me-lately type of people. 
And so we need that reminder. We need the regular pattern of life and the regular pattern of spirituality to be reminded of the importance of these things. But also in this, we see some difficulties, uh, at least for us, where we see things like those who don't obey are to be cut off from Israel. So again, we could go, man, that doesn't seem fair. So if you obey everything kind of, well, if you obey 80% of everything, then isn't that good enough? Well, again, there's symbolism here. Is what did it take for us to find salvation? Jesus to live an 80% perfect life? No, for him to live a completely perfect life. And so the symbolism points there is that your obedience should be the same. Now, God knows, of course, that we are unable to do this, and that's why the sacrificial system will be implemented into this. But it's also the reminder that taking lightly the commands of God comes with massive consequences, and that comes all through Scripture. God's not being unfair. Remember, he's reaching down and rescuing his people by his mercy. He's going to provide for them in the wilderness. He's going to give them water to drink and food to eat when they can't do anything. God is incredibly gracious in this whole process. But he calls us to obedience. He calls us to do what is right because he's the symbolism, first of all, but secondly, because you and I are Jesus' ambassadors. We're to show a watching world what it means to put Jesus first and ourselves way down the list. Obeying completely is a requirement. And, and I don't mean that in the sense of going this legalistic way in which as long as you do enough good, God will forgive you. Your sins are already paid for on the cross. But that doesn't mean that Jesus is like, okay, it's good, go, go live however you want. In fact, Jesus says uh, several times at once to the woman caught in adultery, does no one condemn you? Neither do I. Go and sin no more. He calls us to a standard. Here's maybe a really silly but, but I think tangible example. And I'm not saying this because many of you have this problem because I think we all have this problem. So just don't think I'm pointing the finger at anyone. What is the best way to be safe in your car? The police say that there's something on the left side of your steering wheel that you can use called your signal light. What is the signal light for? Let's well, tell the people around you what you're about to do so that there aren't any crazy uh, misunderstandings. Well, I had a friend growing up who would argue vehemently against this and say, it's stupid, I don't need to use it. Especially if there's people not around, I don't need to use it. Because no one can see it anyway. And he was caught up in what he thought the signal light was for. But when you think about this, is, is what is it really for? It's meant to be used so that I get into good habits so that when the stressful moment comes and I need to all of a sudden lane change in front of somebody, that I actually do it. But if I never use my signal light in those serious moments where life gets real complex and real stressful, am I going to use it? Not a chance. Now again, that's a very silly example, but I think it's practical in the sense of our everyday life is, is if... If we don't pray, and then we go through heartache and pain, and then we go, man, I don't feel close to God, because we're not, we've not learned to be a people of prayer. If we're people that pray, then even when those hard times come, is we're far more likely to continue to go to God in prayer and not isolate ourselves. 
And so you see in the Psalms many times where David's like, God, why have you allowed all these things to happen? I don't understand your plans or your ways. And yet almost always by the end of that Psalm, he resolves himself to go, yet I know you are faithful, that you are in control. The only reason he finishes those Psalms that way is because he starts his life as being a life of prayer. And so the same is true for us. We need to remind ourselves of the goodness and the graciousness of God. Why do we read the Old Testament? We read the Old Testament to see that God is faithful so that we can know that he's faithful moving forward. There's a really interesting verse here at the end that sums it all up for us really simply, but I'm going to make two implications from this. Why are you to do all these things, Israel? Why are you to follow these things so completely and, and so exactly? Why has God given so many details in all of this? Well, first of all, it's not just a bunch of arbitrary rules. It's every bit of it. And even when you read through Leviticus and you see all these kind of what we would see in our culture now as obscure and strange laws, all of them point to God, to his character and to his faithfulness. And so the Israels, as they did their rituals, as they did their washings, as they did their feasts, as they did the sacrificial system, all of it wasn't, man, I got to do this so that God's wrath won't come on me. All of this was, I do this reminding myself of God's promise for salvation, reminding myself of his mercy and his grace to us. That's the first thing. But then secondly, we see this. Verse 26, when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people in Israel, in Egypt, when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. You cannot, this cannot be overstated. If you're a parent, no matter how old your kids are, you are to remind your children of God's faithfulness. You were to look back in strange moments. Maybe there's a, you know, a strange situation that happens and, and you remind, you're reminded of something that happened years ago and you can remind them, here's what God did. And here's how God was faithful in the midst of that. And you might not remember that. You might have even been too little. And so you might think, ah, they're not going to remember. It doesn't matter. That's not the point. The point is that they're hearing from their parents regularly that God and God alone is in control. And that God loves us. And that God had plans for rescuing us. We're not going to know where to go if we don't know where we've come from. So if you're a parent, I urge you in this. Is that it is your responsibility to disciple your children. It's not the church's job. It's not the youth pastor's job. It's not your Sunday school teacher's job. It's yours. Now, praise the Lord, we have people in our, in our church here that do work with the kids, that do work trying to help them, but they're meant to be support systems, not replacements of. And I saw this so often when I was in youth ministry where it was this kind of drop-off, teach my children about Jesus, they'll come home and they'll see nothing about it, but I'll expect them to have a God-honoring life. It's not the way it works, or at least not normatively. 
It is our job as parents to remind our children of who God is, what he has done, and why he loves them. And again, I say it doesn't matter how old you, your kids are, because as, as all of you know this, maybe some of you are going through this right now, is your grown-up children sometimes make pretty stupid decisions. Just like we sometimes make pretty stupid decisions. They don't magically hit 18, go out on their own, and just have it all figured out. In fact, many of them will come home to go, man, I need, I need a, a real meal because I don't remember how to cook. I need you to do my laundry because I've never learned how to do this. We're never completely self-sufficient. We're reliant on each other. Now, yes, you should learn how to do your laundry and you should learn how to cook. Don't get me wrong. But we as people, we as the church need to rely on one another for all things spiritually. And so, yes, go to church and, and, and hear the message of the gospel preached, but study scripture on your own so that you know who God is. So that when your kids go, and, and maybe this is happening more and more than ever now, is why do we do this? Or why don't we do that thing? Or why isn't it okay to you fill in the blank with whatever the cultural norm of the day is? And we can go, let me take you to scripture to show you. Here's who God is, and here's what he's called of us. But maybe more importantly than that yet, is learning that here's why God has sent us. See, the Bible, even though it might seem like it in the Old Testament especially, it's not a list of rules of do's and don'ts. It's an understanding of as we do and don't, we learn the character and the value and, and, and the, the person of God. We learn who he is. It all ties back again to something I said at the beginning, our identity. And Harris again points this out. Israel's identity as the people whom the Lord had brought out of Egypt was to be formed not only through the faithful participation in the celebration of the Passover, but also by proper narration of what it signifies. So when your kids go, man, I don't want to go to church, I want to sleep in. Well, let's have a conversation about that. Here's why we do what we do. And that doesn't mean that you're always going to get them through the door. Especially as they get older and stronger. And in Lori's case, taller than you. Is That's a reality that we have to face, but we still are called to be part of that. And so we remind them, here's why we go. Here's what it does for us. We are, our soul is nourished. But maybe even more importantly is we get to sit down with people and share life with them. And they can pray for us and we can pray for them. And we can learn that I can't do this life on my own. And God has given me a family to help me. Not just my wife and my son, but my brothers and my sisters. These are the principles that God is teaching. These are the reasons that he's calling them to obedience and why he's calling us to obedience. Jesus said it this way. We are to be salt and light in the world in Matthew 5. Paul says it this way in Corinthians. We are to have the fragrance of Christ. Paul also says we are to be ambassadors for Christ. This is not about religious rule keeping. This is about us getting the opportunity to show others who Jesus is. His mercy, his grace, his forgiveness. And I can promise this is true. I think all of us in various times have had people ask, why don't you do that? 
Why do you act that way? Why do you talk that way? Those doors become open for us to say, because you know what? There's a God in heaven who's created us. And he knows infinitely more than I do. And he has shown me in his word how I'm to live so that I would bring honor and glory to him and so that I would be able to love the people of this earth. Let's pray. God, thank you for what this Passover signifies. And and it can seem like just a real simple meal that they're going to eat together before they embark on this journey. But it is so much more than that. You and your wisdom and your sovereignty planned out what salvation would look like ultimately with Jesus dying on the cross, raising again and ascending into heaven. You have written these things so that if we really want to see them and read them, that we can't ignore them. And that we can learn that we can trust you in all things. So God, this morning, my prayer is for each one You know their circumstances. I don't. But many of us are in difficult circumstances right now. Uncertainty is in front of us. We're not sure how to respond to a situation. Maybe we feel alone or isolated. Maybe we feel like giving up. I pray in those moments that we would go to Scripture because we have trained ourselves to read it regularly. Not out of a religious duty, but out of a desire to learn who you are. And I pray that each one that's struggling today, that they would find hope and comfort in you. Whether the difficulty is right in front of us, or or maybe, as read in the text this morning, we're about to embark on a journey of excitement to be free. Help us to trust in you regardless. God, give us the courage to do what's right this week. Give us divine moments where we can come across somebody and we can have spiritual conversation with them to show who you are. God, for parents here this morning, regardless of how old their children are, may you grant them opportunities to look back and to share with their children, look at all that God has done. Look how faithful he has been. So that they would see and understand there are reasons why we do all these things like going to church, praying, reading scripture, and submitting ourselves under your authority. God, thank you for all these things. As we go from here, just pray that you would receive honor and glory from us today. We love you. Amen. Just a quick reminder, there are snacks here at the back. If you're visiting or if you're new or if you're hungry, um, please stay and just spend some time visiting with one another. We want to be a church that, that does life together. So enjoy your time and thank you. We'll see you again next week.